Hello and welcome to Bite Back Chats Books. Today we're handing the mic to a man who has worn many caps during his life. Politician, chief of staff, teaching assistant, political advisor and now peer. It's of course Johnny Oates whose book I Never Promised You a Rose Garden is coming out shortly. Johnny's political awakening began when he boarded a plane to Addis Ababa with his father's stolen credit card aged 15. Intent on helping victims of the Ethiopian famine. Today, he's chatting about ways to change the world, his mental health, and the power of friendship. Welcome. Johnny Hayes, welcome to the Virtual Bike Back Studios. Uh, thank you very much for appearing on our podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. And we're here to talk about uh, your book that's coming out next month, I Never Promised You a Rose Garden, which is a very intriguing uh, title for a book. So let's start off, um, if you could tell us a little bit about, about that. Well, many people may anticipate it is related to the uh, Rose Garden of the uh, of Downing Street, which is where the first press conference of the Liberal Conservative Coalition took place. In fact, it's not. I'd always uh, thought if I ever wrote about my experiences in Ethiopia, which we'll talk about a bit more later, uh, that I would call that book, I Never Promised You a Rose Garden, because when I was on the flight age 15 to Ethiopia, as we were sort of coming into the descent before Addis Ababa, back in those days, you just really had audio channels. Of course, there was no video. And my, uh, in my seat, the audio channel was jammed on country and western. And Lynn Anderson was singing, I Never Promised You a Rose Garden, as we uh, made our descent. And it seemed uh, very uh, apposite for what happened afterwards. Yeah, quite. So your book, it talks about the, well, the entirety of your life. So not just what you are best known for, which is being part of the Lib Dem Conservative Coalition government, uh, but also your very rock and roll uh, past, it's running away at a uh, young age to Ethiopia to um, help out uh, with aid during the famine. Um, is, it was it reads like a thriller almost. What inspired you to write about all of your paths then, rather than, I guess, which you're best known for the coalition government? Well, I think in many ways that uh, lots of people can write about the coalition government. Uh, quite a few have already, and, and maybe some more will do in the future. I, I'm actually the only person who can write about uh, the other parts of my life, because yeah. I'm the only person who really knows them. And I, the experiences I had uh, as a teenager, the huge impact that both a very famous broadcast by a BBC journalist called Michael Burke had uh, and the uh, the subsequent ripples that that caused with Bob Geldof leading to Band Aid and Live Aid and and the whole public awakening around the issue of, of, of aid. Uh, that was really what um, inspired me, provoked me uh, to to run away to Ethiopia to try and save the world in, in my kind of thinking. And um, so I, I wanted to write about that because it was a very important time for me. It was an important time in, in, in kind of world politics. Um, mm. And yeah, and I guess I'm the only person who could, who could write that story. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so can you talk a little bit about your famous uh, abscondment to Ethiopia? What did you want to achieve from that and how do you think it shaped you as a person? Um, I think it's shaped me hugely as a person. I was sat uh, in front of the TV one evening when suddenly uh, this broadcast came on the TV uh, and 
amidst all the plenty that we had in, in the West, uh, I was just horrified by what was happening and apparently without any uh, attempt really for, from the rich countries to, to tackle it. Um, it was combined with lots of things going on in my life at the time. I was um, I was not a happy person. I was dealing with problems with with my sexuality, or well, not problems, but issues with my sexuality and my mental health uh, as well. Um, but I was I, I, and I'd been interested in politics, uh, perhaps stimulated by a film that Richard Attenborough made about Mahatma Gandhi, which I which I got to see at the cast and crew screening, and I it sort of really lit my interest and made me think, you know, by sheer force of personality, you can change the world. And things came together, which caused me to think, well, let me go, let me go and do it. Let me go and see if I can do it. And I discovered once I was there, that of course, a 15 year old boy uh, on their own in, in Ethiopia, A, wasn't much use to anyone and B, um, couldn't change much at all. And I think really out of that, I learned a lot for the future of my life, which was that you can still change the world, actually, but you can't do it alone. You have to do it standing with other people. Yeah. Do you think that energised you or did it demoralise you getting there and realising that there wasn't as much you could do to change the world as you thought? In the short term, it was it was catastrophically demoralising and um, and very, very difficult to deal with personally. Um, but... I think in long term, I was very, very lucky. Uh, the person who rescued me, an Anglican clergyman called uh, uh, Charles Sherlock, he was a very kind and a very wise person. And he, he, he really encouraged me to try and not look at it all as a disastrous failure, but to think about what I could learn from it. And he said to me, you know, as I left Ethiopia, the TV cameras will forget about Ethiopia and Africa, you know, in a a few weeks a few months um but please don't forget yourself go back and learn some skills and and you know come back and when you actually can contribute and so that had a lasting impact on me so although at the time i was i was devastated and i felt it was all a disastrous personal failure uh that seed was planted in me and i managed to to grow something out of it and um you did come back to africa you came back several times uh, so you can talk a little bit about the relationship you have with the country because you've been back as a, a teacher, you've been back as a political, I guess, an advisor, I would say. So yeah, can you talk a bit first about then your gap year teaching in Zimbabwe? What was that like? Was that a little bit more successful than your um, trip to Ethiopia? Yes, I would say it was quite a bit more successful. Um, you'd have to ask the pupils I taught whether they would agree, <laughs> but I, I hope they would. Um, Yes, I, so I wanted to do something and I, I came across this scheme which was actually brought to my attention by one of my teachers, which was called Schools Partnership Worldwide. Uh, and back then, they, they'd only been going a couple of years and they sent people from the UK to go and teach in, in schools around Africa. Well, it was, was Zimbabwe and India, I think, at the time I started. It was very curious. I mean, it's developed into something else and a rather wonderful organisation called Restless Development now. But um, it was quite odd. We had no qualifications beyond our A-levels and we suddenly appeared in these schools and, and were expected to start teaching. Mm. Uh, so how wonderful that was for the, the pupils, I'm not sure. But certainly as an experience for me, it was 
uh, amazing. And I was sort of fortunate enough or, or unfortunate enough to arrive at a school uh, in, in a rural area in eastern Zimbabwe with two other um, English guys, uh, Alan de Serum and Joe West. And we were greeted by a primary school head teacher and we were very kindly shown all around his primary school. And we, we finally had the temerity, uh, one of us, to to say, well, this is all very interesting, but we understand we're teaching in the secondary school. You know, can you show us that? And he sort of indicated uh, to us and we followed his, his arm and we just saw Bush to the horizon. And he said, oh, yes, it hasn't been built yet. And uh, that was uh, uh, on one day. And the next day, the school was opening and enrolling um, the first form of entry. So we were kind of thrown in the deep end and it, it was a rather great story because uh, the local community who had been given legal authority, I think, to open the school some time before, but they'd never been given the money by the government or the diocesan authorities because it was a, a, a mission school to actually build it. They decided, well, we've got legal authority to open it, so let's just open it. And in a bit of a reverse of the, you know, build it and they'll come, they thought, well, if we make them come, they'll be forced to build it. Uh, so we had 140-odd children, uh, three forms of entry and no classrooms. We were lent some by the primary school and we taught, you know, in between games and, you know, sport and stuff. And But it was an amazing experience and we had to get on with trying to help build the school. And, and as a result, I got hugely kind of involved in my connection um, continued. And in fact, I'm still in contact with quite a number of the well, I was going to say of the children I taught, um, the, the students who I taught are now, of course, in their 40s. So, oh, wow. uh, but it was an amazing experience, uh, you know, really wonderful. And it, it just developed an absolute love for Zimbabwe. And, yeah. and during that time, um, I went to South Africa, which, of course, was then under apartheid. And in one of the school holidays, one of the pupils who I taught would ask me if I could... Um, go and see if I could see his father because his father lived in South Africa and he hadn't seen him for some years and I of course was incredibly naive and didn't realize that you you know South Africa was under a state of emergency you couldn't just wander into the the, the township you had to have you know authority to go there and in any way they were understandably very dangerous places at, at the time uh, mm. but I went to South Africa and I saw firsthand uh, apartheid and uh, although I'd seen stuff on the TV you know when you first come across the, the kind of bench that says whites only and you mm. see the way things are treated you, uh, that that then again um, it sort of lit a sense of, of, of anger in me and I, I then of course when I came back I got involved in the anti-apartheid movement and I ended up after the 1994 elections working in the first democratic parliament in South Africa do you think that experience was a part of the reason that you joined the Lib Dems at university? Well, in fact, I joined the Liberal Party, because that's oh. how old I am, uh, <laughs> in 1987, when I was 17. Um, so it was actually before I went to Zimbabwe. And I'd, I mean, the Labour Party was going through one of its um, periodic ructions. Uh, and as I'd been getting interested in, in politics, it had been under the leadership of... of uh, Michael Foote, it was a very left-wing uh, party, and it, and it was 
torn apart by division and it just didn't seem the thing for me and I was instinctively anyway um, a, a liberal I mean I, I instinctively felt the value of society the importance of it but also the importance of the individual within that and so I I joined the Liberal Party yeah, in 1987 um, and then subsequently at university I got properly involved in, in the Liberal Democrats. So the party of change, I guess, and if you joining protests and stuff, it seems like it would be a natural home for you. Yes, and I mean, the, the circumstances actually in which I joined the Liberal Party were that um, there had been a meeting of the London Liberal Party near where I lived, because my dad was the rector of St Bride's Church in Fleet Street. And um, he, it, was a, it was in the summer, and after this meeting, there were a number of um, these politicians standing outside having a drink outside a, a pub called the St Bride Tavern and my dad walked past him and he saw one of them who's a prominent uh, MP uh, Simon Hughes and he said to me you're interested in the Liberal Party you should go and and chat to him and I I don't know I had the precociousness to go up to him and I and started chatting and he was very tolerant um, <laughs> <laughs> being rather critical of the party at the time and eventually said well you know if you're so interested and you think you've got all the answers why don't you come and do some work experience with me and I, and I did that for a few weeks and it was an amazing experience because you know Simon was great at really involving you in stuff and and that really sealed it and I joined the Liberal Party then and and I, I haven't really looked back. Absolutely so how did you progress up the ladder as it were then from work experience to chief of staff is is quite a quite a big leap. There were quite a few years in between, <laughs> should be said. Well, I I um I went to university. I got involved at, at, at university, and we were in pretty dire straits. Uh, I think you know the first set of elections after I was at university was the European elections in 1989, where we came behind the Green Party um, with about four percent of the vote or five percent, mm. something like that. Um, it was all a bit disastrous, but I was I was very committed to the ideals of the party. Uh, had a huge respect for the by then leader Paddy Ashdown, and um, so I managed to grow the university um, Liberal Democrat group with with um, with a number of other colleagues. And when I left university, there was a recession on, uh, and the one job I did see and found was as a political researcher. Um, uh, to a council group in Kingston, which is where I still live. And I, I applied wow. for the job and I got it. Um, and um, I did that for a while. And then I, I, I moved on and went into work in the sort of communications, media communications, public affairs world. And uh, uh, But they asked me if I would stand to be a councillor. So I, I, I stood and won a seat when I was 24. And we... And that was when we formed the first Lib Dem administration ever in Kingston. Uh, it's been very exciting. Yeah, and then things happened. And then um, Kingston had always been a Conservative place. It never, never elected an MP other than a Conservative, I don't think. And uh, in 1995, we had a new candidate selected, um, a guy called Ed Davey. And he asked me to be his election agent. And first I... I kind of said, you must be joking, you know, we don't really have a chance here. I think the national Conservative majority was 15,000. Oh. But he was very convincing. He he had a really clear plan, a clear vision, what he wanted to do, and he really inspired me. And I, so in the end, I said yes. And then we sort of thought, well, maybe the seat could be won in over two elections, you know, 
um, as two parliaments, we'd have to work hard. And then astonishingly, uh, in 1997, we ended up winning by just a whisker by 56 votes after one of the most tense uh, evenings of my life. So, uh, yeah, that and after that, I'd really got the bug and I, mm. I, I couldn't really stop and, and was involved in lots of lots of campaigns until I ended up becoming the director of general election communications for the party for the 2010 election. Wow. And then into coalition. See if I quite a lot of high highs but what I was very I guess in, intrigued or interested to see was that during your book you also you're very open and honest about the fact that you've also had some crippling lows and um, I wanted to ask you about those because for a lot of your book you said that you describe yourself as a very unhappy teenager and I know that you've like talked about your mental health and that's something that you're very passionate about um, so can I just ask you a bit, like, how has your mental health changed as you've gotten older, kind of, what factors have influenced your depression and how, or have you, like, learned to, to manage it? Um, well, I think a number of things. I think with experience, um, I've learned uh, how to deal with things. I've, I've, I've learned a lot about, uh, on, on a relatively superficial but important level, the importance of exercise, for example. Um, really keeping on top of things but I've also had some really sort of good advice and good friends um, mm. uh, and a very close friend of mine who who sort of instilled in me a mantra of you know you, you should look at life as you win or you learn and that way you never lose mm. uh, and that's that's always stuck with me um, I am um, I've sort of going to understand the points at which uh, the things that affect me, the warning sort of signs and to, uh, and to deal with them at, at that time. Mm. I've also found life get easier as I get older. I mean, I, I, if, if there's a message I want uh, to get out of the book and particularly to people who, who, who suffer with mental health problems and particularly, you know, people in their teenage or early twenties who are doing so is, is things, things can get better. You know, my life has got immeasurably better, you know, with every, every passing decade, with, with what I've learned, uh, with the experience I've had, with the, the support of friends and love of family. You know, I, very important part of it to me was, you know, finding my partner, David, who transformed my life, really. And, um, and as I say at the front of the book, it's lit it up with happiness. That makes, obviously... A, a huge difference but I think um, I, I think even before I met him one of the things that um, I, I had learned was just not to judge yourself too harshly and to just always try and learn and never allow yourself to be a victim if, mm. if, if you make blaming other people your focus you just disempower yourself because if something is somebody else's fault you can't fix it and there's lots of things in the world we can't fix. Uh, so we should concentrate on the things we can. And those are the things in, in our control. And starting off with that is about, you know, what are the things that causes one mental distress? Um, what are the things that causes one happiness? Uh, and, you know, how do you try and get more of the one and less of, of the other? And very much, very often, it's, it's actually about other people, focusing on other people, you know, rather than just yourself, but yeah. while having enough time and understanding to be kind to yourself. 
Absolutely, yeah. One of the things that really stuck with me from the book were the kindness of both friends and strangers. You know, the, the person in Ethiopia, I think, the, was it the, a reverend? He kind of took you in and looked after you, but also your friend who put a postcard in your book when you were feeling really down and you opened and you saw that he was thinking of you and that, you know, really helped you, um, which is really lovely. So do you, do you think that the... Uh, conversation around mental health has opened up in the past few years like how far do you think we still have to go before we de-tabooize it completely well I think it's changed a lot I think it's it's changed hugely and that's great uh, and I think some of the work that you know people like um, Norman Lamb who was a minister of health in the coalition did on that um, uh, and, and talking about these issues there are many other people Alistair Campbell's of the world and, and, and tons of others have very bravely spoken out and I think that I think that really helps helps I mean when I was growing up as a teenager nobody spoke about mental health I mean they just didn't you wouldn't that would be seen as very odd and strange and uh, and that made life really difficult because I think one of the hardest things is when you think you're alone when you think this is just you and it's something terrible about you and why can't you deal with it um, when everybody else around seems to be fine. And of course, you know, one, one often doesn't realise that a lot of the people who seem to be fine are, are, are not necessarily so fine. And I found a real um, a strength in understanding I wasn't alone. And the more people speak out about it, uh, the more people talk about their experiences, their ways of handling things. And there's no, there's no way you know, one way, this is the right thing to do, because it depends a lot on individual circumstances. But I think by sharing experiences of what works for different people, what helps, can be can be really important. It can be a real lifeline just to know you're not on your own. And to know, and the thing I'd say to everybody who is um, is struggling with mental health or is, is worried about somebody who is, uh, first of all, if you are suffering with mental health, it's very easy to to shut out other people, but there's lots of people out there you might not think it who really want to help you, and you need to let them. And secondly, outside, quite often one thinks, "Oh, I better leave them alone," you know. And you've got to think about the right moments. But as you mentioned, you know, that single act of a friend of mine putting a note uh, in my in my suitcase, he knew that trying to have a conversation with me at the time wouldn't have been the right thing to do, but he just put a note in saying, you know please try and hold your head up and be happy and, and, you know, I love you kind of thing. And that, you know, that meant the world to me at a very difficult time. So say those things are important. Did you find it hard to write about these things? Because you are very, very honest in the book. Like at moments you write about that you were planning to commit suicide and your struggles with your sexuality. Um, yeah, did you find it hard to write about that? Yeah, very mm. hard very hard and and um you know particularly at that point when i was in ethiopia and i thought i was really sort of at the end of the line and i didn't uh, yeah I, I almost thought i didn't have an option um which was of course stupid and irrational and i was you know 15 and not thinking that uh, actually there were loads of people out there who just wanted me to be safe and who, who loved me and cared about me but there's no good saying it's irrational. I mean, that's, of course it's irrational. You wouldn't you be contemplating that if, if, if you're in a rational state of mind. Yeah, it was, it, it was quite scary um, to remember that. And one of, the, one of the things that really 
caused me to write the book was I went back to Ethiopia many years later with Nick Clegg um, when he was Deputy Prime Minister uh, on an official visit. And it, it so happened by an absolutely bizarre chance of fate that uh, Reverend Father Charles Sherlock, who was the person who had rescued me, uh, who'd subsequently become a, a clergyman in Scotland, but he what happened to be in Ethiopia that weekend. Oh. So I stayed on after the rest of them went back. And I decided I'd go and stay in the hotel uh, that I'd stayed in all those years before. And I, I went back there and I was quite nostalgic and I'd, I'd obviously blotted a lot out. And I booked into a room and I went up to the room and I went to out onto the balcony and that's when it really hit me. And I recalled what I had been thinking and it scared the life out of me, to be honest. Um, and I thought I need to find a way of of dealing with this and one of the one of the ways I thought was well why don't I write it down I didn't actually initially think um, of it in terms of publishing a book but then one thing le le led to another well we're pleased you did so. <laughs> um, so quickly touching back on Africa in that case because I'm quite intrigued to know because um, after Zimbabwe you then came back again to Africa uh, but this time to South Africa um, so you could talk a bit about that and the political differences between South African politics and UK politics? Yeah, I think the first thing I'd say is anywhere that I've gone and lived and, and, and worked, I've learned a huge amount. I mean, I, I learned massively from my Ethiopian experience, um, but I learned hugely um, uh, teaching in Zimbabwe. That was, that was absolutely seminal for me. South Africa, likewise. So what happened was after the first democratic elections in 1994, uh, an organisation called the Westminster Foundation for Democracy, which had, I think, initially been set up after the Berlin Wall came down and the Eastern European countries were restored to democracy. And it had been established to sort of support democratic parties that were sort of new, new to democracy, as it were. And after 94, they decided, uh, under the um, inspirational leadership of um, a Labour MP and later um, minister called Richard Caborn to extend this um, to South Africa. And so four of us were sent out at different times to support um, parties in the South African parliament. And I was assigned to, to go and work for the Encarta Freedom Party. Now that came as a bit of a shock to me because when I'd left uh, South Africa at that time when I visited when I was in Zimbabwe and I'd gone back uh, eventually to the UK, joined the anti-apartheid movement. And I was very much aligned with the ANC. And the Encarta and the ANC were absolutely um, at loggerheads. Although they served in a national unity government, there was a low intensity civil war going on in, in KwaZulu-Natal, which was the main province where Encarta um, had its strength. And so I was very shocked when I was actually told I was going to be in, assigned to uh, Encarta. And I, I was worried, but I mean, Richard Cabon said to me, well, look, you're, you know, you're going out there to advise and you're, you're not there to um, take a political side. And eventually I was sort of persuaded. And actually I, I had an amazing and fascinating time. And um, luckily the ANC and, and Encarta were coming together and, um, seek, and finding peace, actually. Um, which was lucky but for me it was an amazing experience because when I had left South Africa in um, 1988 after that very short trip and I'd, I'd got an overnight bus out I'm just so appalled by 
um, replace and time mm. sense in, in Pretoria. When I got to Bight Bridge, which is the crossing point in Zimbabwe, back into Zimbabwe, I thought, well, I, 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 can, I will never go back to that country until apartheid's ended. But at that point, and that was, that was as I say, 1988, you know, the idea that it was going to go without some sort of bloody civil war, and it, it, if anybody had told you at that time that in two years, Nelson Mandela would be released from jail, all the South African Communist Party, the ANC, all the liberation movements would be out unbanned, people would be free from jail. They would have, you know, committed you to a mental institution. I mean, they, it would, it, so, you know, that's the other thing that you learn in life. It is astonishing the, pl- the pace of change, of things that can happen, things that you think are stuck there. So, to me, Nelson Mandela had been this sort of inspirational figure I'd, I'd, sort of looked up to, but he was very much a sort of virtual thing. And I remember thinking just before he was due to be released, oh my God, you know, he can never live up to the the, yeah. you know, the pedestal we've all placed him on in the anti-apartheid movement. And and then he came out and he and he more than did it. So to be working in Parliament when, you know, he was president and to be in the public gallery when he gave his his final speech as president was astonishing. To see the leader of the National Party, the party, the party that had been the party of apartheid, give a speech, you know, in praise of him, and then to see the members of Parliament of the African National Congress give a standing ovation to this white leader. I mean, it was, it was astonishing. It was an amazing time, a roller coaster time, of course, because there were lots of lots of problems, and there still are. But the fact that they avoided that descent into a, a, a terrible racial uh, war was, a, was a, I mean, a huge um, testament, not just to Nelson Mandela, but to many, many thousands of people uh, who just said, look, we, we want to make the world a better place. And that's got to start by putting aside all the hatred and not creating new ones. And that was incredibly magnanimous. I'm not sure it was completely returned, I have to say, by some elements of the white population. But, um, but South Africa is still, despite all its problems, is, is um, it's still a triumph of, of human spirit, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So it seems that you have, yeah, more than anyone else I think I know, you've lived a life that's kind of characterised by change, and you've been a part of change. And I think that kind of came to a, um, I guess, an an apex with being part of this coalition government. Can you just talk about trying to create change in a coalition government? Kind of what did you manage to push through and what were you proudest of? And then what kind of did you have to end up compromising on? Well, I think if, 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 if you join a coalition and particularly as the junior partner, and I think we had about a fifth of the number of seats uh, of the Conservative Party, uh, in Parliament, um, you have to compromise on quite a bit, is the truth. Uh, but you had to make a decision. And uh, the decision was at a time of, of you know, severe economic difficulty, uh, and the first time the, the Liberal Democrats had been asked to, you know, step up to the plate, were we going to say, oh, this is all a bit difficult, and we don't really like the Conservatives? Or were we going to try and make a go of it? And I, although all my politics, my instincts, I would much prefer a coalition with the Labour Party. I, I had no doubt. You know, the Labour Party was not in a position to um, to form a coalition with us. Uh, many of their members, um, member, members of Parliament, didn't want a coalition. 
um, even if the numbers had worked, but they, they didn't actually add up. Uh, so, you know, we went in and we, uh, and we pursued, you know, I, th I think something like 80% of our manifesto was actually uh, implemented. One of the issues for us, which I think has been less commented on for reasons that will become obvious, was that we were a real threat because suddenly there was a bunch of people in government who didn't really owe any favours to anyone because, you know, we'd been largely ignored by the media. We hadn't, you know, we weren't bought by big business or, um, or the trade unions or the media, and particularly in some elements of the right-wing media. That was a fairly terrifying prospect. Um, uh, but we had, I mean, we had no, you know, there were Labour newspapers and there were Tory newspapers and there are some newspapers that uh, sort of are broadly neutral. Um, <laughs> yes, the Economist maybe, which was quite supportive. Um, but they're not the mass readership ones. So that, that made it difficult. But, you know, as they say, you know, if you're a ship's captain, you can't complain about the sea. Um, and those were the waters we're in. I think we got quite a lot done. Uh, you know, from my point of view and thinking of the things that really got me into politics, whether it was, you know, my feeling when I came back from Ethiopia that was appalling, you know, we had been cutting, Britain had been cutting the percentage of our gross national income that we spent on overseas development assistance at a point when, you know, it was really clear the world was crying out for that. Um, and I wanted that change. There was a, a view from a, a sort of UN target of 0.7% of gross national income. At that time, again, in, in, in 1985-86, the idea that was going to be achieved was regarded as ridiculous. But, you know, that's, that's one of the messages also. Don't not do something because people tell you, well, you haven't got a hope, because lots of people will tell you that. And if it's worth doing, uh, they'll almost definitely tell you that. Uh, but what you have to do is, is keep plugging it. Of course, that's what, you know, the churches, the, the NGOs, the, the other passionate people. And one of the things that really attracted me to the Liberal Party was it was a party that had that as a policy um, uh, pledge. And, and it talked about it as well. It said this is important. And we got that done. You know, we are, I think, still the only G7 country uh, which actually uh, delivers 0.7%. It was a Liberal Democrat MP who got that passed into law because the Conservatives, although having agreed to that, then resisted um, putting it into law throughout the coalition. Uh, on the mental health issues, I think, um, you know, the advocacy of, of, of Norman Lamb, our health minister, was amazing, absolutely 100% backed up by, by Nick Clegg. Um, on, uh, you know... The, the issues that, that, again, had been very central in my teenage years around sexuality, the, the Equal Marriage Act, which Lynn Featherstone, one of our ministers, had absolutely pioneered and fought for and got, um, and got through amazingly, you know, a coalition with the majority of Conservatives, although the majority of Conservatives actually voted against, it has to be said, but, um, uh, but with Labour help, you know, and to be fair to David Cameron, he gave his support as well. Um, but it was Lynn, really, who, um, who championed it, pushed it, convinced Theresa May and, and got it through with Nick's backing. Nick was the first politician, I think, who called for equal marriage in the 2010 election. So, you know, th those were um, 
significant changes. There, there seems to be a bit of a narrative, oh, they would have happened anyway. Well, maybe they would have happened one day. They wouldn't have happened then. They wouldn't have happened in that way. And I can almost guarantee you on the 0.7%, if there was not a law in place, the Conservatives would have reversed that by now. You know, there's lots that went on. There's lots that happened in a coalition government that I, you know, would rather hadn't. But to be honest, you know, that's the nature like of it. A lot that, that you got through, though, so... I feel like that's quite a good, quite a good margin. Um, so kind of taking a broad view of your life in that case, you know, you, you went to Ethiopia to try and change the world. Do you feel like you've managed to, to do it? And what are, you, what are you proudest of having done in your, in your life? Yeah, I think I've changed the world. I mean, that's a big claim to make. Sometimes I, uh, when I've done talks at schools about the you know, House of Lords and politics, I've entitled it How I Changed the World, just to make them sit up. The, the truth is, you don't change the world on your own. I, I've been a very small part of very big changes. Um, and But that's how things change. You know, it's when lots of people get together and do things. So, yes, I do think I have played a very small part in that. I'm, I'm pleased to do that. And, um, and I, my message to everybody is, is you can change the world. You know, don't don't believe things have to stay the same. They only stay the same if you don't get out and try and change them. And if you get out there and get a load of like-minded people together, and you know, who knows? It might take you ten years. It might take you twenty years. It might take you fifty years. But if it's worth fighting for, just keep fighting for it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, a really good note to wrap up the podcast on. So uh, thank you so much for appearing and sharing your words of wisdom about uh, pretty much everything. I think. Thanks, Vicky. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to another Bite Back podcast. If you want to know more about Johnny's extraordinary story, do head to bitebackpublishing.com and pre-order I Never Promised You a Rose Garden now. It's out on the 21st of October. And don't forget to like and subscribe. Until next time.